Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Exchanges, a joint production of Cambridge University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm speaking with Andrew Leon Hanna, author of the award-winning book, 25 Million Sparks, The Untold Story of Refugee Entrepreneurs. Andrew, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks so much, Mark. Glad to be with you. Oh, glad to have you on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Sure. Uh, I'd love to. I My fun fact that I normally give is that my parents were born and raised in Egypt and that the port that they immigrated from, Cairo, uh, is on the same exact latitude line as the place that they eventually settled in and where I was born and raised. And they've lived for the last um, you know, 35 plus years, which is Jacksonville, Florida. So Jacksonville and Cairo right on the same latitude line. And um, actually, that, that their immigrant story ties a lot to why I wrote the book. Hmm. Uh, so what was it uh, specifically uh, about this book that led you to uh, decide that it needed to be written? And, and, and how did you go about writing it? Sure, yeah. So the book, uh, in general, is about the power, equal dignity, and creativity of refugees around the world. Um, and it focuses on three women from Syria named Esma, Melek, and Yasmina, and they live in the Zatri refugee camp in Jordan. Esma is a storyteller and poet, Melek is an artist, and Yasmina is a wedding shop owner and, and salon owner in the camp. And then it zooms out and talks about 20 camps and cities around the world uh, and refugees' impact and their stories in those places. Uh, and the, the main goal and why I wrote it is that I wanted to shine a light on the fact that refugees are some of the most innovative, resilient, powerful human beings alive. Um, and they're just like us, except they dealt with the most unthinkable tragedies um, you could imagine uh, at no fault of their own, and yet were able to kind of stand up and, and create beauty in their communities and, and for their families. Um, and, and even deeper, the kind of the reason for it is this belief that all of us are fundamentally equal, and yet Many people, uh, especially those who are disadvantaged or excluded, are treated in the media or, or and by politicians and just in general as um, less than or uh, the way I put it with refugees is as victims or as villains. So they're often portrayed as people to be looked down upon um, because they're they don't have any agency of their own and they're kind of pitiful um, is the victim narrative. And then the villain narrative is, you know, what we've all heard before, which is they're coming to take our jobs and commit crimes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they're, these completely miss kind of the truth and are also just fundamentally dehumanizing. And so uh, they're so different than the story that Esma, Melek, and Yasmina live out. And so many people live out in the Zetri camp and in the Shirkoli camp and in camps all around the world. And so I wanted to tell a story that uh, was more uh, accurate and more unifying and more dignified. I was wondering if we could begin that story by talking about uh, Esma, Malik, and Yasmina's lives uh, prior to when they became refugees. Uh, where did they live and, and what sort of lives did they lead prior to that point? Yes, certainly. They all grew up in southern Syria. Um, so Esma and Yasmina were in the town of Daraa and Malik was in Damascus. Uh, and they lived, um, you know, as you, if you, if uh, the folks who read the book on, on the line, if they, uh, you know, they'll read and they'll see that they lived pretty comfortable lives, uh, peaceful lives, uh, and lives 
um, where they had family around them. Um, they, uh, you know, didn't have to worry about the types of things that um, now have come to uh, define uh, their move to the Zetri camp. And so, um, you know, when the Arab Spring occurred and uh, when the um, when the kind of government cracked down on the uprisings in Dara uh, in, in 2011, that's when things really changed dramatically. And so you can imagine um, these folks living lives not that different than what we live uh, wherever you are in the world listening to this, but yet um, all, you know, on the turn of a dime, their lives were completely reshaped. Um, Esma's house was burned down. Um, you know, Yasmina, uh, was, was pregnant when she left, but it was such an urgent issue because the, you know, she realized she had to leave because of the safety of her family. And so, um, yeah, very kind of normal, peaceful lives, um, and all kind of suddenly uprooted by something that they had no, um, choice in or no effect in. And so they had to flee to, to Jordan and, and they ended up in the Zetri camp. I was wondering if you could uh, elaborate a bit. What were they playing? Were, were their families playing any role in, in the civil war? Were were they uh, involved in, in any of the protests of the Jasmine Revolution? What exactly, specifically, led them to decide that that the uh, the civil war uh, would uh, you know was something that that would force them to you know flee everything they knew for this uh, uncertain existence uh, at at the Zateri camp. And no, they weren't involved. It, the Dara, you know, there was fighting in Dara, and so there was um, significant violence in the area between um, protesters and the government. Um, you know, after the government's initial crackdown on the, the the peaceful protests there, and so you know, millions and millions of Syrians who have had no involvement in you know anything um, have fled. Uh, it's now uh, half the country has been displaced, um, and so yeah, they were essentially victims of a war that they couldn't control and had nothing to do with. I was wondering, before we get a bit more into their lives uh, in the Zateri camp, if you could describe the camp itself, where exactly is it located and how many people are in it and and how did it come to exist? Yeah, so it's located near the border uh, between Jordan and Syria. There's now about 80,000 Syrian refugees living there. Uh, it launched around 2012 um, when, you know, the, the displacement that I was talking about, the kind of first big wave occurred and people needed a place to be safe and needed a place to kind of make sure that they wouldn't um, be hurt by the conflict. And it started in a kind of barren desert settlement. It's co-run by the UNHCR and the Jordanian government. Um, and it has aid groups all around, um, you know, from the one that I work closely with, Save the Children, Jordan, um, and many others, and, and they are all kind of in their colorful vests. A lot of the aid workers are actually Syrian refugees who live there and who are doing great work to kind of uplift their own community. And as the book sort of narrates, um, you know, the camp, you know, I think it's non-controversial that no human being should live in a refugee camp. And so one thing I try to talk about in the book is the inadequacies of the camp uh, in terms of resources, in terms of support for the families, in terms of healthcare and education, although it's improved quite a bit thanks to the support of, of different NGOs and more importantly, the investment uh, that's beginning to happen a little more in the refugees themselves, it's still, of course, inadequate. But yet, 
the refugees in the camp shouldn't be mixed up with the inadequacy of their surroundings. You know, those folks are some of the most powerful creative people. And uh, now there are thousands and thousands of startups, businesses, social enterprises in the camp um, that uh, generate significant re- revenue each month. That the last stat was, I think, about 13 million in revenue each month. Um, and so a couple of uh, main streets have really risen up as the kind of market centers. Uh, and it's largely, uh, if not entirely, because of the Zetri um, residents, the Syrian entrepreneurs who live in the camp and, and have been able to essentially make an economy out of nothing and uh, create support for their families out of nothing. That was one of the things in your book that I thought was very fascinating, which is something I mean, sometimes you, you we think of a refugee crisis, those of us who uh, have you know, the luxury of distance from one, and we think of it as people are fleeing. We, we, it, 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 that it brings up these images of passivity, uh, you know, people who are, 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 are victims. And yet the story that you uh, detail in your book is, you know, is one that you know, seems so obvious after having read of it, which is how these people are, they they are not just, you know, their lives are not simply on pause, that they cannot simply wait for things to happen to uh, uh, for them, that they are making things happen for themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, it's really an incredible, uh, one thing I, I've, I've thought a lot about being at Stanford now is a lot of the people who are celebrated the most uh, in entrepreneurship and in uh, kind of the, the magazines, Fortune or Forbes or whatever it is, uh, are people who often actually had a significant backup option and maybe it wasn't so much of a risk and they had access to capital and they had access to networks and, and other things. Whereas um, some of the people who don't get any attention or love, like like the three people mentioned in the book and dozens others that I mentioned in Zetri and, and around the world, um, you know, they, they start with pretty much nothing uh, usually. They, they fled suddenly because a conflict kind of overtook them that again, they had nothing to do with. Uh, but they realize I have to leave. So um, as in the case of some of the entrepreneurs I mentioned, they kind of, you know, if, if their house is burned down, they don't have much left. Or even if they do, they put it in a few trash bags and 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 put it in a truck and, and try to get over. And we're seeing that now uh, in the Ukraine. Um, and so, yeah, they, you know, life doesn't stop. Um, Yasmina has a really beautiful quote in the first chapter about, um, you know, I, I, I mentioned to her in our, in our interview um, some people might be surprised to hear that the weddings continue and the celebrations continue in the camp. And she said, you know, she joked and said, Syrians always find a way to celebrate. Um, and then she said more seriously, <laughs> yeah. And then she said more seriously, um, you know, there's a time for sadness and there's a time for, for happiness. Um, and, you know, they have been shown incredible resilience in, in being able to keep going. Um, and these are the things that make, people entrepreneurial and it's why refugees are 1.5 to 2x more entrepreneurial or it's one of the many reasons i was wondering if you could perhaps uh, elaborate a, a, a bit further upon what it is that that refugee entrepreneurs face that regular entrepreneurs don't both in terms of it, it's the disadvantages that that you've described but also as you hint at in the book that that they possess certain advantages as well that, that we don't necessarily think of given the fact that they're refugees. Yeah, certainly. Um, it, it's, and it, the, um, 
success of refugee entrepreneurs is even more amazing once we talk about the barriers. And, and I think a lot of them um, you can guess at, but, you know, in doing work with refugees uh, in the U.S., particularly helping them get zero interest loans for their businesses, particularly during COVID, it really magnified it for me um, even more than when I was writing the book. Um, but, you know, one of them is access to capital. And so, um, you know, this, well, actually, what I'll start with is language, of course. Language is a major barrier. Um, for the folks in Zetri, you know, it was Arabic either way. So that, that wasn't as much. But you see folks in the U.S., uh, folks who, who flee to the U.K., like Razan, uh, a cheesemaker that I wrote about, um, folks in the U.S. that I work with, like, um, you know, there's a, there, there's a few folks in, in Portland, Maine that I work with who, um, who have done incredible work but, you know, came to the country with no uh, English. And so language is a big barrier. Um, often tech is a barrier. Um, so when it comes to access to capital, this ties in, um, refugees and immigrants, uh, tended to have the highest business closure rate in the U S, uh, during the pandemic, partly because they don't often have relationships with banks. Um, they don't have kind of an inside connection. Um, and there's also discrimination in the, in the banking system and in the lending system and particularly for refugees, um, often they are not permitted to work or they're not permitted to. Um, have access to these systems in the countries that they're in. And then there's, um, you know, we talked about discrimination, capital language, tech. There's also the fact that uh, they don't have networks. And so they come to a place without anyone. Um, and you can imagine a lot of starting a business. It's helpful to have inbuilt customers, inbuilt partners, or at least people who you know will um, support you if you need something. And so that's been a difficult barrier. And then the, then the, the kind of unsaid thing of, of, the, just the trauma of, you know, legitimately some of the most difficult, darkest things that can happen. You know, a lot of the people who I write about, um, Iman in the Zetri camp, you know, lost a leg because um, she was the victim of an explosion, kind of a, a random explosion that she couldn't have predicted. Um, you know, uh, people who have seen their families die in front of them. Um, and and so uh, that kind of trauma is not cannot be kind of uh, overstated. Um, and so then to your point, you know, with all those barriers, how are refugees still so entrepreneurial and still creating millions of jobs and generating so much uh, economic and social value in, in the communities? And, and I think there's a few. So the first is resilience and the ability to bounce back, you know, from, from issues. And so, you know, as I mentioned, a lot of people say that they're resilient or think that they're resilient, but uh, these are the most difficult, tragic things that one can deal with and having to rebuild your entire life from scratch after seeing uh, your home country under such difficult situations, after seeing people you know die, hearing stories from back in Syria. Uh, Yasmina would get phone calls about you know her house and what was going on and her family. Um, the ability to bounce back in that makes the ability to bounce back in business and setbacks in business much, much easier. Um, Commitment. So, you know, one thing Yasmina talks about in the book is um, she had to sell all of her wedding jewelry um, at some point during her early stay in the camp because she realized that I won't be able to go back. Things aren't peaceful uh, yet and it might be a while. So I need to go all in on this. And so there's a level of commitment because she wanted to make sure that, you know, her children had food to eat and that uh, her family was safe and, and, and stable. And so, um, when you put that much into a business and her, you know, her wedding shop and salon, it's hard to 
uh, imagine going back, right? And so uh, there's this resilience, and then there's also this 100% commitment where there's no kind of easy backup option. Um, and then there's a risk-taking ability, which relates to both of these, but you know, essentially because you're so committed, you're able to take risks. Again, you don't have a backup option like many entrepreneurs that are you know, in Silicon Valley or wherever it is. Uh, and then there's other stuff that folks have studied like cross-cultural advantages. So there's a Harvard Business Review article that talks about um, when people tap into their cross-cultural experiences, they tend to create more successful and more impactful businesses. And so Malek is an example of that because her art is incredibly beautiful and has done really well on international awards and competitions. And part of that is because she brings her own unique kind of Syrian flair uh, to the art. Uh, and then there's finally something that I, I came about a lot in, in talking with folks, which is empathy uh, for the community. And so whether it's a refugee, um, you know, like Masika, who's in the Shirkoli camp in Ethiopia, but came from DR Congo, or Esma, who came to uh, Jordan from Syria, or um, you know Deborah, who is a an event planner in Portland, Maine, who came from uh, from DR Congo, and you, you know whoever it is, you have folks um, who want to create a new home and have a significant amount of empathy. And so the examples I use in the book are Esma because she has such a degree of of concern for the people in in the Zetri camp that she knew the needs very well. And so she had this desire to solve those customer needs. And for her, it was a social venture that made sure that the kids in the camp were uplifted and told stories that made them feel like they could do something successful in their lives, uh, despite the, the tragedy they were born into. Um, I mentioned a, a man named Carus in, uh, in, a, in a, another camp who essentially wanted to make sure that he had, there was a university and educational system in the camp uh, because he grew up um, you know, you know, in this generation, and he wanted to solve the problem for that generation. And so there's a level of empathy too that, uh, you know, this kind of cocktail of things makes refugees so much more entrepreneurial and so much more successful entrepreneurially. I was wondering if we could perhaps focus a bit upon the, the three women themselves, Esma, Malik, and Yasmina. If you could perhaps I- I explain how it was that each of them uh, in uh, their own uh, uh, entrepreneurial activities uh, were able to succeed. I mean, what did uh, Esma bring and what did she do? What, what did, uh, what did, how did Malik, uh, how was she able to, to, you know, bring together art, you know, materials and supplies to work with in a place that in which everything is scarce. And how did Yasmina, you know, have a, a shop where she could uh, have uh, host weddings and, and provide for weddings when it would seem that that would not exactly be regarded as 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 you know, the essential services and supplies that that a camp would need. Yeah, sure. So uh, you know, starting with Esma, um, she had always had a passion for education um, growing up, and so. Um, this was something that was always kind of within her heart. And that's a pattern from all three of them. Um, when she came to the camp, um, she dealt with some serious um, tragedies uh, early on in Jordan, um, where she lost her, her son due to a miscarriage in part, um, just because of a lack of kind of ready access to healthcare. Um, and so she uh, was able to um, kind of channel within her as, as she tells me, like channel within her this desire to uh, make sure that no child in Zetri um, would suffer and that, you know, her two, her two kids at the time um, or three kids at the time 
um, two kids um, at the time of the the um, miscarriage, uh, Tamara and Maya, and then her youngest, Muhammad. Uh, she had a lot of desire to see kids like her, uh, kids like those kids around the camp feel more encouraged, feel more supported, feel like they could dream. And so basically she, uh, with the support, she saw a posting for an NGO um, doing a, a project that helps people in the camp tell stories and bring books to the camp and and, and teach kids um, called We Love Reading. And she went to the info session and she was worried that, you know, you would need to have a college degree or something like that. But she was so thrilled that they just, you know, gave her the the bag of books and they, they gave her some guidance and then she was off and running. And now, um, you know, her early days were, were spent essentially, you know, chasing kids around the camp. She, she told me, uh, because, uh, she just had to convince them that, and their parents, you know, this is, let's do this, you know, and, and, you know, you know, there's a lot of issues in the camp, especially in the early days where, um, you know, kids have to work just to create some kind of income for their families. And so, um, Sometimes it would be taking them from that or, or taking them from something else. But Esma knew that it was really important that these kids continued their education and, and that um, they were able to kind of imagine a life outside of what they were living. And so she started getting a few kids in, the, in her trailer. Um, she eventually, uh, she did a, a kind of a community library where she would give books and, and ask them to, to bring the books back to the trailer when they were done. And she was surprised when they would do that. And she talks about her first, uh, one of the first activities she did with the kids where she asked them to draw whatever was kind of in their hearts or whatever they wanted to draw. And often it was tanks and kind of military equipment. And, and that was really disheartening for her. Uh, but she later, you know, a year later after doing these sessions every week, which became sort of uh, a magical kind of ritual for the kids, um, you know, and one that, you know, when, if you were in the room watching, it's really a beautiful thing. Um, she talks about an activity she did a year later where she, she asked people to draw with markers on balloons, again, anything that they want to draw. And it was much more kind of beautiful, happy, aspiring things. And she took them outside and, and had them, uh, uh, take the balloons, uh, and, and, and set them free, um, telling her, telling them that they would go off to Syria. Um, so these are just examples where now, it's a bustling kind of social venture that has so many kids involved. She has a, kind of an apprentice who's done the same thing as her. Um, and, you know, it was the resilience of, you know, this was an untraditional thing at the early days, but now um, it's commonplace for the kids and has been so impactful. Um, for Melak, uh, she uh, was younger when she left. And so she brought with her some art supplies. She had always loved art. Um, she also actually just graduated from, uh, a medical program at a university in Amman. She won a scholarship to go there, but all throughout, you know, she, she talks about the first days in the tent, uh, before it became trailers and kind of metal trailers in the camp, there were tents. She would have nothing really to do except for her art. And so she was able to pour kind of her emotions into her art and she kept getting better and better learning just off of YouTube. And, you know, again, just an ability to be entrepreneurial without, the kinds of resources that some of us take for granted. Uh, and her art has been so impactful in the local community and, and really around the world through some of these competitions and in, in talking about human rights issues and talking about, um, uh, in talking about other things to empower women and girls in the camp. And uh, she's led and organized some, some uh, drawings on the walls of the camp. So if you kind of enter the camp, you'll see a lot of 
colorful paintings and drawings. Um, Malek often kind of leads that with kids on World Refugee Day, on International Women's Day, things like that. Um, and so she's been able to, uh, you know, she has her kind of career and then uh, as a medical professional, and she's also has a design kind of organization and, and she's able to continue doing the more creative art as well um, through kind of a, just a, a online studio uh, and a Facebook page and other things. Um, but she often relies on these um, bazaars and kind of uh, galleries. Um, and her art is honestly by far the best art I've ever seen in my life. I'm not a professional, um, but it's <laughs> truly beautiful. And the book has a few of the paintings in it. Um, and then Yasmina, um, so she also started at a young age. She already had um, a wedding shop and salon in Dara. Uh, and so she was used to it. She knew how it worked and that made it harder to leave, but she knew she had to leave, um, you know, again, even while pregnant. Um, and, uh, she was able to, um, you know, by selling that wedding jewelry, get enough money to, uh, work with some folks in Amman, uh, to loan a few dresses, uh, just a couple dresses at first, um, from a, a gentleman in Amman. Uh, and so that began kind of, the, the start of her business in her own trailer. Um, and she was able to start kind of creating her own dresses as well. And then eventually she secured a, a spot in Saudi market, which is one of the two main kind of entrepreneurial streets, uh, in the camp. And she had a, as a, a team now, and she was able to kind of outfit the store in one of the most really amazing kind of visuals. Like if you walk in, it's uh, described. I described it in the book as like a forest of colorful dresses where you, you can barely even breathe. You just go through, and it's this beautiful kind of medley of dresses. Uh, and then in the back is this much more serene, peaceful salon where Yasmina provides kind of counsel to the the brides and obviously takes care of everything for them in terms of um, in terms of their their makeup and their their hair. Um, and so she was able to, you know, start with those two rented dresses, plain kind of dresses, and then eventually sew some of her own, create some of her own. And then uh, she kept kind of growing in terms of customer and client base, um, especially during the Eid holiday. Uh, she, she was starting to get a lot of boost. And then she eventually was able to, um, you know, buy, rent, let, loan more and more, create some more of her own. Uh, and now she has a kind of pretty consistent client base. And there are other um, wedding dress shops and, and throughout the camp as well. Um, and so for that, it was basically a desire, you know, there was a desire to continue celebrating people, but still getting married, as you said, life goes on. And so, um, you know, she tapped into that and by being kind of a very kind, welcoming, uh, person who makes people feel at home, uh, she was able to build a really strong client base. You've already alluded to how, the experiences that you're using to discuss refugee entrepreneurialism in your book are not confined to just these three women in this one camp. That is really, uh, you're, you're talking more generally in your book about uh, refugee entrepreneurialism uh, throughout the world. I was wondering if you could perhaps talk a bit about how the experience of these three women are uh, reflective or embody the uh, refugee experience in the world today? I mean, to, to what degree are there circumstances, say, specific, but more generally, you know, how, 
you know, how, to what degree are, are these three women very representative of what we see with refugee entrepreneurialism in places like Ethiopia, uh, like other parts of the world? Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, they, you know, the, the amazing thing is as incredible as, as these three women are, as, you know, as you'll read in the story, uh, in the book, they, um, are, are, as you have read that they're not, um, atypical. And so, you know, I do work with refugee entrepreneurs every day, uh, and immigrant entrepreneurs in the U S and so they're, um, you know, these are some of the same trends that come up, this kind of amazing resilience, this huge commitment to the hundred percent commitment to the venture ability to take risks, uh, scrappiness, cross-cultural kind of insight that allows new products and an empathy for the customers that just, you know, desire to create a home in their new, um, city. And, and, you know, uh, the unique thing about these three women is um, they're in a camp and uh, the majority of refugees are in kind of host cities, um, although there's a significant portion of camps as well. And so um, th- that's just one difference from some of the other folks you'll see. And so I also talk a lot about Utica, New York, as an example, um, another place that I was able to travel. Um, it's a place that was declining significantly in population um, you know, after the factory closures and it was refugees that by all accounts stabilized and in, in many ways rejuvenated the city, um, refugees from more than 40 different countries around the world. Um, it's kind of nicknamed the city that loves refugees. Um, and yeah, there are entrepreneurs there who helped rebuild, you know, uh, part of the, the city helped revive kind of congregations of churches and, um, you know, create uh, other places of worship and mosques and other places of worship um, that kind of revived the downtown area. Um, And so, yeah, a lot of uh, what we see from these three women is meant to be a window into the broader, um, broader world. You know, one kind of common, uh, more famous story uh, that I write about in the book is, um, you know, for the Syrian refugees who are able to um, go outside of a camp and be resettled somewhere else. Um, you know, there's a story of, of someone named Razan who started uh, Yorkshire Dama Cheese in uh, in uh, in England, in, in Yorkshire, England. And she was able to basically, you know, despite having two degrees, speaking multiple languages, could not find a job um, because of the issues we've talked about, lack of networks, discrimination, um, other things. And so just with a 2,500 pound loan, was able to start this company that now makes over 100 uh, pounds in revenue, won many awards, kind of been profiled all over the place. Um, you know, there's basically for every town where there are refugees, there are incredible stories like this. Um, you know, during the pandemic, there were, uh, there's a story of a doctor uh, who's a refugee living in Iran who uh, was able to kind of help counsel uh, women um, from, from Afghanistan in, in terms of providing them support because domestic abuse increases a lot during it increased a lot during the pandemic in many parts of the world. Um, and so providing that kind of service. And so it's just this blend of, um, people who, uh, you know, have passions that they want to enact, have a drive to create income for their families after everything was kind of taken from them and have all of these inbuilt advantages that make them more entrepreneurial. And when it comes to places like Utica, uh, you see the kind of mass impact that bringing a lot of refugees in can have 
on rejuvenating an entire city and, and bringing back an entire city. And, and then for that reason, uh, in the U.S., for example, it's a pretty common economic development plan in small cities to have, you know, particularly in the Rust Belt uh, and beyond, to have uh, a refugee resettlement program that brings people in who uh, are willing to work really hard and are willing to um, come to a place that often people are leaving. Um, and so it is quite common of, of the, um, of the broader refugee entrepreneurship phenomenon. And, and, you know, my hope is that people will see how incredible these three women are and then, um, realize actually, you know, it's really a shame and, um, a a major, uh, moral failing, uh, of our world that we're not welcoming these people in. And and the fact that, uh, less than 1% of the 30 plus million refugees in the world are, uh, formally resettled is a huge blight on our on our global system. And that raises a very interesting question as to what can what needs to be changed to uh, you know improve the situation for refugees, and what can we as ordinary citizens do about that? Yeah, and so uh, just to give a size of the magnitude, um, the most refugees. That have ever existed in world history exist today. Uh, when I started the book, the reason it's called Twenty Five Million Sparks is that there were twenty five million refugees in in late twenty eighteen when I started the book. Um, you know, there were about twenty six point four when I sent the kind of manuscript to press, and and now there's sadly well over thirty million um, because of the last I checked, five point five million uh, who have fled Ukraine because of the, the invasion um, there, and so. A massive, massive issue. There's this is not even to talk about you know climate refugees and, and more people who will be fleeing, um, sadly. And so there's a kind of several levels that I kind of try to present it as. The first is there shouldn't be world this level of violence in the first place. And so that's kind of a global system. That's a kind of a, an issue of uh, of of peace and war and an issue of uh, governments um, that. Uh, don't treat their citizens properly and then lead to um, kind of uprisings and things like that. Um, Beyond that, once the refugees exist, uh, there's this resettlement issue I just mentioned, which is less than 1% of all refugees are are formally resettled. And part of that is because only about 30 to 40 or so countries participate in the program in general. And then the U.S. has historically been a leader in resettling refugees, but they had a gigantic drop uh, under the Trump administration uh, and dismantle a lot of their resettlement programs. And so in general, the world is doing not nearly enough and, and countries are not committing enough to welcoming refugees. And so that's the first kind of policy issue um, that is you know urgent and, and just an easy no-brainer. And it's both from a moral perspective and, as I've mentioned, an economic perspective. In the U.S., there was a study done by um, DHHS, I believe, that showed from 2004 to 2014, um, that 10-year period or, or 10-year period there, uh, it was a $63 billion net fiscal impact uh, from refugees. So that's net fiscal impact. That's including whatever costs uh, it took to kind of integrate or, or welcome them uh, across a 10-year period. Um, McKinsey's done a similar study in Europe um, showing that it, it, it's a huge economic boon if, if refugees are resettled and welcomed. And so um, it's both an economic benefit and it's a moral kind of issue that, that we're not uh, welcoming more refugees. 
Uh, and the other issue there is 85% of refugees are in uh, 80 to 85 are in developing nations. And so um, Jordan being an example, you know, the top four countries that have welcomed Syrian refugees uh, or the four of the five, the exception being Germany, are developing nations. And so these are countries that are already, you know, doing work to try to in, increase their own, uh, the well-being of their own kind of citizens. And so it becomes an extra burden that um, they also should be taking, but uh, it would be quite a lot easier and quite a lot better if the higher income countries were welcoming refugees as well and, uh, and are able to kind of take some of that burden. Um, so that's another kind of policy issue. And then there's more kind of intranational kind of policy issues. So uh, in a lot of camps uh, and a lot of other situations, refugees aren't allowed to work, aren't allowed to have work permits or benefits. Um, so some camps are starting to change this. Some host cities are starting to change this. Uh, but it comes from a reticence of the host nations to uh, agree that these refugees will be there permanently. Um, and so... Uh, this is a problem because the camps end up living for 10, 20, 30 years. Zatri has been over 10 years. The DAB in Kenya has been 30 years. So there needs to be some kind of a transition plan recognizing they may not be able to go back home um, and welcoming them and integrating them as full citizens. And then finally, at the very kind of community level, which again becomes a policy issue because of the funding, is having resettlement centers in cities across the U.S., across the world that are uh, dedicated and well-funded toward integrating refugees once they arrive. So there's the, you know, starting with refugees shouldn't exist and what are the, what are the kind of issues uh, globally that have caused them? And then refugees should be welcomed into more and more countries uh, at a higher clip. And then the next kind of level is integrating and making sure that they're uh, provided housing, food, job training, language training, uh, and, and mental health support for those who have dealt with traumatic situations. Um, and, uh, you know, the finally, the last thing I'd say is there's a storytelling issue. And, and that's a lot of why I wrote the book, which is part of why there is a lack of investment and support of refugees is because they're framed as burdens often or even worse criminals or, or problems. Um, it's not true. And I think it has an effect on the investment in refugees, because if we truly saw what well, this is a massive asset and these are some of the most innovative entrepreneurial people. And by the way, we've talked a lot about small businesses. There are famous kind of examples of uh, large businesses and, you know, Fortune 500 companies. Uh, I think, you know, over around 50% of unicorns were started by immigrants or refugees. Um, so these are major economic benefits. Um, but yet the storytelling somehow becomes uh, about the burden and, and it becomes a political issue when it shouldn't be. Um, and finally, I, I'll just say in terms of what we can do, you know, each of our local communities uh, has immigrant welcoming centers. Often the YMCA or another organization is doing that. Um, refugee resettlement centers, sometimes you know, Catholic charities, other orgs do that. So to the extent that you're able to fund those, that is incredibly helpful. These are folks working on the front lines to help refugees resettle and, and have a life that uh, is stable and can contribute to the community. Um, there's an element of employers, like whatever employer you work at, there is likely not enough being done to fairly consider refugees for employment. Uh, and so there's an element there of how do we both recruit and ensure a fair process in interviewing and hiring refugees. Um, there's an element too of, of advocacy, which is you know, making sure that 
your national government understands the value of refugees and, and uh, making sure that they understand it's a moral and an economic issue that they're not welcoming, um, you know, the vast majority of refugees around the world. We appreciate the time you've taken to speak with us about this. But before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Sure, yeah. So a few projects all related to underrepresented entrepreneurs um, and creators. So the, the first is called DreamX America. And we had a film out on PBS recently. Um, actually, it was about a year ago now uh, that kind of kicked things off. And during the pandemic, we have um, uh, supported uh, 45 plus refugee, immigrant, and first gen entrepreneurs in partnership with Kiva US uh, in um, getting about 350,000 plus in zero interest loans uh, to keep their businesses running and then um, invest in their communities. And so about half of those folks said they, they might have or, or definitely would have had to close their businesses without it. And 80% said they wouldn't have gotten a loan otherwise. So it just shows kind of the, the network and discriminatory effects of the banking system and the, the need for uh, more capital for those folks. And, and so many of them are now thriving uh, with just a little bit of funding, usually just to give perspective, usually an average of just $7,000. Um, makes a huge impact um, that jives with a lot of what we talked about. Uh, you know, Masika and Shirkoli had only a $72 uh, investment to create a bread cooperative. You know, for Esma, it was just some books. Uh, we talked about Razan and her $2,500 loan or $2,500 pound loan. Um, so that's continuing to work. It's called DreamX America. Uh, another is called Immigrant Love, which is a coffee subscription service that curates from immigrant and refugee coffee entrepreneurs. And so for that, it's meant to be a big product investment in uh, these small businesses, um, coffee in particular, because so many uh, refugees and immigrants will start coffee companies that source from their home nations. And so there's kind of a double impact there. Um, and so that's been really exciting. And then a, a, a finally, a newer one called Sewa, which is uh, going to be a Web3 platform that focuses on uh, NFTs created by underrepresented artists. And so... Um, highlighting uh, art made by uh, artists from around the world um, who are underrepresented and who have a social cause and a deeper purpose behind their work. Um, and so we're excited about that as well. Um, yeah. And then the continuing with the book uh, tour and the talks and, and hopefully to get this message out to more and more people. You sound so busy. I, I'm amazed that you had time to write the book to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not as it's not as hard as it seems. I always try to encourage. I think the idea of writing a book um, often intimidates people, especially people from you know untraditional backgrounds, often people of color. And so um, I always like to say, you know, just try to get the word document open, create the chapter breaks, and then deposit some some words every once in a while. I don't mean to downplay it, but just to encourage people to write. Well, that sounds like excellent advice. Andrew, thank you for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks so much, Mark. I really enjoyed it. I appreciate what you're doing.